Welcome everyone to JCB Art Studio Season 5. My name is Joanna and I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child. I don't want to forget, people, please mark your calendars. I will be in Nanaimo at the Nanaimo Harbor Front Library, February 18th from noon to four. And I'm part of a number of authors who are going to be at an author's fair, which finally is something on the island. Okay. So yes, please, please note that February 18th, it'd be great to see you. Today, I have Kev Harrison with me. Kev, he's a British author, uh, dark fiction he is living on the outskirts of Lisbon, Portugal, right, like currently now, which I think is really fascinating. His novella, Below, is also out now. And his earlier novella, The Balance, is also available from Lycan Valley Press. Now, his debut collection, Paths Best Left Untrodden, is out now from Northern Republic. His short fiction has been featured in a number of anthologies and magazines, as well as on podcasts such as Tales to Terrify and the other stories from Hawk and Cleaver. When not writing, Kev can be found running, which I think is really cool, another runner, um, sampling too many craft beers, which I also think is really cool. We've got quite the market <laughs> in Vancouver of craft beers, Kev. I can imagine. Um, and singing bizarre songs to his cats and traveling to far-flung places with his better half, Anna. Kel, good to see you. Good to talk nice to you. Nice to see you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, good, good. So let's, I'm going to get that standard question out of the way, okay? Mm. And I've had feedback from listeners who have said to me they like hearing it. They like knowing yeah. what this book is about. So tell us, tell us what Below is about. Well, Below is basically, um, it's a subterranean horror novel, uh, sorry, novella. Um, and so it's set in um, in a mine, uh, an old gold mine in uh, California, on the outskirts of California. Um, and basically the protagonist's grandfather was buried there like about 60, 70 years ago. Um, and like kind of was a local hero because he saved some other miners during the collapse um, and then this guy uh, from Wales in the United Kingdom goes over uh, with a TV influencer, like an adventure travel influencer, to kind of do a documentary um, about the, the what happened and tell the story of his grandfather. And then when they get there, there's something down in the mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so I have to ask, hmm. have you done cave exploring or I've, I've learned a term is it spelunking ah spelunking yes i've heard of this but i've never done it because oh. i would be useless beyond useless in that situation yeah. well then this shows your research because i was down there in that mind getting uh, like feeling the creepies down there so what what was the research like for this novel well, about. actually, what was really lucky, actually, was when um, before I lived in Portugal, I lived in Poland. I'm like a traveling English teacher, although I'm not traveling anymore. I'm fixed here now. Um, and when I was in Poland, one of my in my first year there, I had a student who was an absolutely lovely guy. And he worked for Poland's biggest uh, coal mining company. 
And after a year of presentations and presentations and presentations about his minds and about the process, um, he said to me, what are you doing this weekend? And I said, absolutely nothing. And he said, well, okay, um, why don't I take you to the mine? And um, it was such a weird experience because like um, this mine uh, is one of the biggest in the country. There's, I think there's one that's bigger. And this thing was about a kilometer uh, down. So about uh, about a thousand and hundred yards, something like that. So if, if, you, if you work in Imperial. Um, <clears throat> and when we got there, the funniest thing, um, we got to like the, the entrance, we went through the gateway. And then uh, this guy um, says to me, okay, Kev, you've got to... Uh, Take your clothes off now. And I was like, Same dude, right. this it was not this kind of uh, a date, as far as I know. <laughs> um <laughs> but the reason was that, and this is this is something that came out in the in the story because I thought it was just so fascinating that when the, the further down you get, the the more the temperature, because of the pressure, the temperature just goes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I basically had to put on these overalls basically over my underwear. And and it was actually not even it, when was it in the year? It was like uh, April or something. So it wasn't like super hot time of year. But when you got down there, it got to like sort of 30 degrees, mega humidity because of that pressure. It was just horrendous. And the other thing about it, which really blew me away, was um, just the darkness. Like, um, because I've been like to the wilderness, you know, on a on a cloudy night and seen, you know, absolute dark. But when you're down there, there is just something else. Like, um, like the lights kind of stretch and then just kind of die um and it's just so uncomfortable unsettling you just feel like I shouldn't be here like as a person this is not for me yeah so what I'm also now just wondering what about is it quiet like in the book Hmm. um there are noises okay so I was just wondering is it quiet when you're the further down you go it was very quiet, actually, but then they always have these like machines. And because it was coal in this case, the machines are dealing with quite big sort of lumps of matter. So you've got like these um, like automatic kind of conveyor belts with scoops on them that are just like rolling around and they clatter. And that kind of echoes through the chambers and stuff when they start them up and switch them off again. So there was enough like sort of uncomfortable, unsettling sounds. Yeah, I mean, it was just I, I was really grateful to the guy. It was a really, really interesting life experience. But uh, as like a job, no, thank you. <laughs> Well, forget it like every time the characters go a little deeper in that cave Mm. or turn a corner i'm really good i'm expecting something to grab them okay as i as i like as you start reading from the very beginning right Mm. okay the claustrophobia would get me um Mm. i saw a documentary where a group of scientists went down into a cave and they wanted to see if one cave joined up with another cave and then you even add the water into it so then they had a diver yeah yeah yeah. no thanks shaking his head no way and (laughs) the diver is in the cave now going under the water and i'm just like no no (laughs) okay so how did you pace out these scenes um was it in logical order or did you write the scenes as they came to you or yeah well uh to get a little bit spoilery um when they get into the uh mine they do kind of discover these journals um that belong to the grandfather as he was like sort of buried alive and sort of like contemplating you know how he's going to spend his life in there how he's going to survive or or not as case may be um and so 
I originally started, I, I wrote most of the narrative in order. Um, but when it came to those kind of journals, at one point, about a third of the way through, I thought I just need to map this out and figure out like how does his mental state change? How does he get affected by this process? Just so that was all kind of laid out in front of me and then I could slot it into the to the main narrative as it was happening. So yeah, so it was kind of a bit dual sort of narrative really. Okay, okay. Um, because you mentioned the journals and I'm just thinking about the storyline. So it's not, we have what's happening to Nick, Chess and Sophia. Exactly. As they go down in this mine, right? Mm. And then you learn more and more about Nick's grandfather and those journals. And it's almost like there are two stories, that, which which is really cool. And you start learning more about the the grandfather. So mm -hmm. did like just how did you like? I'm you kind of mentioned how you approached it. That mm. like did what I'm. I guess what I'm wondering is, did the grandfather's storyline come to you first, or did Nick, Jess, and Sophia's storyline come to you first? That's a really good question, and no one has asked me about that actually since I, since this book came out. So, um, yeah, it was the grandfather story that came first, actually. Um, yeah, because like um, I just had this idea. Uh, well, I, I I'm a bit of a sucker for folklore. In fact, a total sucker for folklore. So, like anything you read of mine will have some kind of folkloric element most of the time, at least, um, especially the horror stuff. And so, um, uh, I read about some specific folklore, which which tied into what happens to um to the grandfather and uh and i just thought oh this is this would be such a great thing and i had this idea about the mine and about that claustrophobia and then i had to think about how to um get the character of nick into the mine and sort of made this familial link uh, because because the story is really about about heroes and how you kind of perceive them and how that perception can change by certain events and how kind of we <clears throat> I suppose we tend to be very kind of like uh, one way or the other with, with uh, especially with family members and things like this, like sort of role models, you know, it's like they're perfect or they're terrible. And, you know, the reality is probably somewhere in between. Um, so it was kind of about that on the, uh, underneath. Um, and then I had to think about how, yeah, how to get him in there. And so when I started writing, actually, um, before I started writing fiction, um, about five or six, no, maybe more, no, maybe about 10 years ago now, uh, I started writing uh, travel blogs. Oh. And um, when I was travel blogging, I uh, was, I became kind of part of like a travel blogging community, as it were. Um, and what I found really remarkable, and this is perhaps just naivety on my part, because there's no reason this shouldn't be the case. Um, but from the sort of sub community of people who were doing like extreme kind of adventure travel stuff, you know, like free climbing temples in jungles and stuff. Oh. It was overwhelmingly women, which I found really bizarre. Yeah, yeah, really surprising. Uh, I mean, there's no reason why I shouldn't be, obviously, because, you know, yeah. women are perfectly capable of such things. But I just expected it to be either a bit more even or maybe even more male-dominated, which yeah. perhaps shows some ignorance on my part. So when I needed to get this way to plug Nick into that situation, I thought, like, why not have like an influencer trying to find her way into TV, which obviously is going to provide her with a more stable income and less kind of, you know, always on kind of lifestyle. Yeah. And so, uh, so that's where Jess kind of came about. And then, then it kind of all just fit together. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Okay. So now that shows my ignorance too, because as you're saying that, I am one of these women who 
I don't like camping. You mm-hmm. will not find me in the jungle. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do not like camping. Um, I I can I'll do cabins, and there better be a flush toilet. So I would just <laughs> yeah okay. <laughs> that's just me, you know. But that's interesting because now like you're with these characters, you see their motivations, and we're we're going to talk about that mm. um, in a second. Now, the character, I like characters who you have Nick, you have Jess, and then you have Sophia, the mm. camera person. Yeah. You know? And um, Nick has just read the third note. And mm. that third note, after I read it, I thought, well, no wonder this place is haunted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> stuff's going on, right? Yeah. But I don't want to give away what's written on that third note. Mm. So Nick, he reads this third note. And Sophia, how he said it, you know, she, Sophia, she simply says, he'll come back. She said, he'll be okay. You know, and I, it was just, it was simple, but I I could see her thinking he'll come back, whether she's trying to even convince herself, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so what tip or suggestion would you give to new writers about dialogue? Ah, it's really, yeah. I mean, this is something that I really love, actually. And I find that I find it much easier personally to advance story via dialogue. And I think this is part of the fact that, um, I mean, I'm very lucky because I'm an English teacher. um, And so I am, you know, I spend 40% of my life uh, listening to interactions between people, um, you know, often listening for mistakes or for like learning opportunities, but still I'm kind of getting that um like genuine want of of person a to communicate something to person b and so i'm always kind of acutely listening to that so i think i mean in terms of advice for writers i would say like just listening to people um i read a really good article actually a couple weeks ago on um, lit reactor the website um by a guy called peter dirk um, and it was just talking about exactly this like keeping a journal um in your pocket you know or on your phone or whatever and um and just listening into conversations when you're on the train on the bus in the bar in the coffee shop or whatever it is in the waiting room for for a doctor's appointment whatever um and just you know when you hear snippets of conversation just scribble that stuff down because i think it's very easy especially when you do want to advance story through dialogue to kind of make it you know bigger in some sense and grander more grandiose and i think a lot of the time the simplicity of dialogue is is the beauty of it. Obviously, you can have some, you know, flourishes in there, of course, as, as it's writing after all. Um, but I still think like when you start, kind of boil it down to like a pure natural dialogue, I think it just it, it sounds better. It feels better in the writer, in the reader's mind. Well, there, there, literally, there's six words that Sophia says. Mm. And I... <laughs> I, I felt for her because, you know, like I could just see, I could, maybe it's because the reader can connect with what she's saying, you know, like mm. he's, he's just, he's, he's marched off, right. He's gone. And yeah. she's like, he'll come back. You know, and you can just, I like, I could see that he'll be okay. You know, and I'm like, Mm-mm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Okay. It's relative in this context. I think. <laughs> Yeah, and the thing with dialogue, though, is I find sometimes you're trying to get information across, but you're also trying to get it across very naturally, too. Mm. You know, like yeah. two people would actually be talking. And I know there have been times 
when my my husband and I will be sitting in a coffee shop and we'll be quiet. And then he'll look at me and he goes, you're doing it again. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. He goes, you're listening in onto their conversation. I'm like, no, I'm not. You know, but in my head, I'm, I'm like repeating. Like, hey, don't forget what this, this person has said, <laughs> right? You know, now I have interviewed a few horror authors or dark genre tales and I'm getting an education because Nick has very personal reasons why he's going down in this cave mm-hmm. and when he he really doesn't want to do you want to talk about his motivation or just how that because I was like you know I was sitting there reading it and I thought this is a horror novel and this man has has such personal reasons why he's yeah. doing this. I mean, well, Nick Nick's character kind of is that his his whole background is that he comes from a small town, yeah. and it's a small town in a place that's quite rural anyway. And you know, for better or worse, a lot of the time, people in those situations are perhaps judged a bit more harshly for you know their moral choices or even things that are not choices, but you know, kind of might appear that way to outsiders. So in his case. Um, he grew up with quite a lot of stigma because his grandfather, you know, was the runaway because he left his uh, family, he left his wife with a young child uh, to go to the gold rush, the very end of the gold rush and try and make his fortune and then then passed away. Yeah. And so their family was kind of looked down upon. Um, and so, but growing up as a child, he kind of was told this story by his parents uh, about him being really a hero. So, you know, despite what people say, you know, don't don't believe that because, you know, he saved these people's lives in the process. Um and so he very much kind of wants to like this is a redemption story for this person that you know he's he's always kind of idol worshipped, um, but has also always kind of been told you know is actually a bad apple. Um, so so for him like the the importance yeah is going there and making sure this de- documentary happens so the world can see you know what a great guy this uh, this grandfather was. Yeah. Well, it's it's neat. It is really neat seeing reading about this about Nick's you know reasons. You know, and um, the other uh, conversation that got me, it was between Sophia and Jess. Mm. And they're, they're looking for clean water. Mm. And they have this great conversation. Again, like, again, this is a dark tale, but they have this great conversation about religion. And it is such a legitimate conversation, you know, and. Sophia, she was raised Catholic. I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. you know, and, and she, she, they are talking about, you know, angels, you know, and, and seeing kids selling their bodies, you know, Sophia is saying this and doing drugs, mm-hmm. you know, and Sophia saying, I didn't see any angels in those places, places mm-hmm. where people most needed one. And I thought, you know, this is a, such a valid point, discussion, conversation. Mm-hmm. Just, I was, you how how or why was your motivation? You didn't have to have that conversation in there, and I'm so glad you did. So, what what made you want to include that? Well, I I have kind of a, a weird relationship with religion because I'm not religious. I wasn't brought up religious at all, um, but I was always fasc- I've always been fascinated by it. And like I said, you know, folklore to me. 
is kind of part of the same thread. It's kind of like the stories that we tell ourselves as a species to make sense of the world. And I think religion is very much about that as well. You know, as a non-believer, I obviously appreciate other people have different perspectives on that. Um, but it's very interesting for me as well, being having studied religion quite a bit. I actually did religious uh, philosophy as a specialism in my degree. Um, and I did religious studies uh, in high school as well as a choice because I'm just, like I said, fascinated by the whole thing. Um, and now, of course, um, I live in Portugal. And before that, I lived in Poland, which are both quite deeply Catholic countries. And so you get to kind of see coming from Britain, which is very much a secular society, you know, most of the religious people are not are basically the ones that aren't British, you know, most, most of the time these days. Um, uh, coming into this, it's kind of, it's really interesting to be kind of immersed in that environment where religion is there. And so I end up having, um, let's not say arguments, let's say uh, heated discussions uh, with people about my religious feelings and theirs. And I, I try to do that always in a respectful way. You know, I'm not someone who's going to be, you know, bashing religion, but at the same time, I have my views about things like, you know, the problem of evil, which is what she's kind of talking about here. Um, and obviously the relevance in the book as well is that um, there is this character of the angel yeah. in inverted commas, and we don't really know what that is. Yeah. So, yeah. I know I, like I said, I was like, this is a dark tale, but uh, like I say, it just, it, it pulled me in. Okay. Mm. And um, I don't want to like it's in its valid questions. It is such a valid, valid conversation they have, you know? Um, yeah. Because, you know, I'm not going to get into religion, but it, it is, I, I really appreciated it. So Thinking That's of, really good to hear. Yeah, awesome. yeah, I I did. Be, okay, I'm just gonna say it because cool. there are times I find like my husband here. Okay, here we go. My husband was an altar boy up to age 16. Okay, and we we have had discussions, and we believe that there is life after death. Okay. We believe in, I would say, the principles of religion in terms of, mm. you know, not do not hate the, or, or the, the like the Ten Commandments. Sure. Um, but we don't believe in the structure of uh, the Vatican. Okay. Like the that. sort of organization, like the. Yeah. yeah. And okay. All that wealth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's yes. Us. Yes. And. The hierarchy and mm -hmm. why women can't become priests. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it, so it it makes for interesting discussions we have. So um, that's why I, I yeah, like I said, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate that conversation, Sophia and Jess have. Okay, I think so. as well, like Jess coming from where she does, like from sort of um, a Latin American background. Yeah. I think that she would be kind of. Well, certainly more well versed in in that religious side of things. So I think she was kind of always going to be the authority, if you like, in that conversation when it comes to discussing it with Jess, because Jess is British and and you know yeah. white British and probably comes from a less sort of religiously informed background, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So each book, it's a different writing experience, uh, and I'm finding it. I'm working on edits for the third book, and Snap. I. Yes. It's so different. <laughs> it is, it is. So after writing 
So thinking about the first book, okay, that yeah. was the balance. It was thinking about below. Um, after writing below, um, did you, what was your experience like? Um, what were the did you how, how was your experience from writing different, which writing the two different books? Well, um, I think I saw something when I when I just written the balance actually, um, and it was I can't remember who it was now, but it was an author that I look up to and kind of is very you know well respected in my genre, and he was saying on uh, Twitter or something, you know, like. Um, writing a second book doesn't get any easier um, because it's a different experience. And I thought that can't be true because now I've done one, surely it's easier to write the second one. And oh, he, yeah. he's, he was absolutely right. It's not true at all. <laughs> it's completely, completely hundred percent accurate what he said. And so every book has its own challenges. Like I, you said, you're in edits at the moment. I, I'm also in edits for a novella at the moment. And, um, and the problems that I have um, and the things that I have done well and less well, and perhaps even badly in some cases, um, in the new book are entirely different from the ones that I did badly in and well in the balance and in below and in the novel that's coming out next year as well. And it's just like, I mean, I don't understand it. Like I, I can't, I can't piece together any logic for it because like some of the things that I think, oh yeah, I really nailed that in book one, in book two, no, in book three, absolutely not. It's just so confusing. Yeah. Well, my critique partner and I, Carol Ann, we had a critique session yesterday and we were both like the weekend before saying, I don't know what I'm going to send you, you know, and, and she's saying the same thing. And we sent each other our work. We had our critique session and we both had said before we started that there must have been um, close to a full moon or a full moon because we both felt that we didn't know what we were doing, you know? Oh and God. so after the critique session, we're like, okay, thank you. I feel like I'm writer again, you know? So <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's wild. And I, you know, it's a wild ride for sure. Now I was on your website mm. and you write that you're transitioning to a nine months writing three months intensive working plan for the next two years. Mm. You have multiple projects lined up mm. and that, so I was wondering where that to me, that's, and I, this is not a, 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 a negative. I'm not, this is not negative at all. Mm. I think that's disciplined and that's, I think that's a good thing. I found when I retired in last January, I had to almost keep to like the same schedule, my work schedule with right, regards right. to my writing. So um, why did you decide to take on this approach? Well, um, like I said, I've been teaching English for um, about, about 11, 12 years now um, in different places. And um, one thing that happened was uh, the pandemic kind of uh, crashed everything, as you know, uh, in, in many different fields. And um, one of the casualties I felt of, of the pandemic was, in fact, like English teaching, uh, sort of general English and exam English for regular people. Um, the approach of schools really changed. And so the demands on teachers became uh, sort of that. Whereas previously you'd work primarily in the afternoon until the evening. So you'd have like the morning and early afternoon free for other things, you know, be that fitness or shopping or housework or writing or whatever. Um, that kind of came to a screeching halt. So it, we ended up with 
you know, like you might teach a couple of hours in the morning, then you have like three hours off, then you might teach an hour again, then you might have three hours off, then you might teach another three hours. And so basically your whole day was kind of spent in the workplace. Um, and obviously you didn't get any extra pay for that. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to factor in things like eating out every day because you're in the school environment for for much longer period, um, often like 12 hours or more. Um, and so it just sort of came to the point where I was thinking, this is really draining. It's kind of not giving me the any bandwidth really to work on my fiction at all. And so over the pandemic two years, I really didn't write anything like as prolifically as I had for the previous three or four. Um, and in the summer, I actually do work in the UK university system. So I go over there for two to three months and I teach students from Asia, um, the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, um, um, occasionally South America, places like that. Um, and it's a much more, it's a much better organized and much more rewarding process for me because of these new time constraints that were placed on the, the, the school system here um, and everywhere, as far as I know. Um, and it actually pays significantly better as well. So I figured out that if I do that work and I behave myself when I'm in England, don't go and spend too much uh, drinking craft beer with my friends, um, then uh, I can come back and I can make that money stretch through the year, more or less. I do some sort of, you know, some private classes here and there, yeah. um, but but it means I can spend the majority of the time writing for those nine months of the school year. Excellent. Excellent. Mm. That's good to hear. Okay. Now, I'm curious to find out mm. what are your reading choices or was I know there was a particular book for me that inspired me to like reading because I used to not like reading when I was a okay. kid so was there a particular book that inspired you that made you you mentioned folklore so mm. that made you want to write <laughs> the darker um what people would call horror novels or the darker stories yeah hmm well um, as I was, I was a pretty voracious reader as a child anyway. Um, and I read a lot of, a lot of children's books, of course. Um, I remember reading a quite famous kids novel, uh, called the secret of Nim when I was a kid, which is about like a community of rats, you know? Um, I think that was the name of the film, actually. I think the book was called Mrs. Frisbee and the rats of Nim, but yeah, that was really good. I really enjoyed that as a, as a sort of nine, 10 year old, but around the same time, um, because my parents were, uh, not very um, good at policing such things. I did also discover my dad's horror shelf, uh, horror oh. paperbacks, and started reading adult horror books like um, James Herbert, Stephen King, stuff like this, um, way too early. So, you know, obviously half of it whew, were over my head. Um, but the the bits that were sort of grisly and gory were very much appealing to my 10-year-old brain. Yeah. <clears throat> That's great. That's a great answer. I love, you know, yeah, that's a great answer. If, well, hey, if, if mom and dad or dad can read it, why not? Why can't I? <laughs> right? That's the thing. Yeah. And we were kind of left to our own devices a lot of the time at home because my parents were both, both working, you know, so I was sort of around that age, started to be spending more time at home alone. Uh, yeah. The other thing actually as well was that in my dad's, um, where the folklore comes from, yeah. is my dad uh, also collected um, a magazine, which was very popular in the UK in the 70s, 80s, called um, The Unexplained. And it was, you know, UFOs, cults, um, monsters, cryptids, um, ghosts, all, all kinds of stuff like that. It was just brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Okay. Okay. Now, you mentioned entering 
a competition with your friend. It was um, I, like I, it was on one of the interviews I watched with you uh, where you're writing a story a week. And uh, now that's a short story. Yeah. Okay. So what was that experience like? It was probably the most formative experience I've had, actually, in terms of uh, as a writer of fiction, because um, the brilliant thing about this story a week challenge, and I don't think I could do it every year because I'd go completely out of my mind. Um, but the brilliant thing about it is that, like, if you fail, which I did, I only managed 39 stories instead of 52. Um, you know, that's like oh, kind of what? a really excellent failure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also that, like, um, you know, that, you know, if, if you're writing a story and you get halfway through and you think this is not great, then you just know that I'm just going to finish it this week. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's not great. I could throw it away because on Monday I'm starting something else. Okay. Um, and so you can experiment, you can play around, you can try different things. And there are things that I did during that time, uh, which I think really informed the way I write today. And I might not have come to those if I hadn't had that freedom to just try a bit of everything. So, you know, I think that was really helpful. Now, you are a runner, and I never thought as a teenager that I'd be a runner. And I was thinking about it last night. I've been running for over 25 years now. Wow. Um, I'm not fast, Kev. Don't don't get any same, ideas, same. okay? Um I I yeah, it's it's a way for me to deal with stress yes and um i noticed my outlook on life i went through a period where um just there was so much going on and i my outlook on life i was starting to get um more anxious mm. and then i thought you got to get yourself out there and start running you know yeah. and there's something when even it, I thought even if you walk part of it, or even you know, even if it's a crappy run, like because you know, you, you, some days yeah. runs are better than others, and you never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that that it, I was telling my husband, I said it has made such a difference, you know. Yeah. So, what what why do you like running, or did you have you always been a runner, or how how did you get into it? I mean, I've definitely not always been a runner. I I I. I only learned to drive when I was 39. So I really walked a lot as a young person. So I always enjoyed walking, hiking, this kind of thing, being mm. outside in the outdoors. Um, but running, no, I always thought running was for uh, crazy people, frankly. <laughs> I thought like, um, you know, my, my wife actually hates running and she always, uh, whenever I talk about running, she sends me the same meme, which says, do people who run know they don't have to? Um, <laughs> which I think summed up how I felt about it for a long time. And then um, when I got to my mid thirties, I had this superpower until then where I could eat as much as I liked and I never gained weight, like never. And then suddenly I started to like get a little paunch of a belly and I thought, no, this is, this is not happening. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, gyms are not very interesting. So yeah. I thought, oh, let's just try running. Yeah. And so uh, for the first like three months, it was a real battle and I'm sure you kind of can relate to this because when you start off you're just so bad because you're not conditioned for it and your body isn't used to it um and so I was running like one and a half kilometers two kilometers getting stitches in my side and feeling terrible and just thinking why do people do this it's insane <laughs> and then when you reach a certain point you kind of can't really ever go back and it's what you said it's yeah. this mental health thing like yeah. uh when I have periods where I, like I had the flu about a week ago so I haven't run for about a week and a half yeah. and 
you know, already I'm kind of a bit twitchy, you know. Um, so I'm going to run tomorrow morning. And I know that like after that, my brain is going to be like much more open, much more uh, balanced, much more logical and rational and all that stuff. So, yeah, I completely relate to what you said. Like it's the biggest mental health help for me. Or I find sometimes uh, if I'm ill and I see someone out running, I'm almost, almost jealous. Yes, I'm not out there, right? Hundred uh-huh, percent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So, what's next for you? What's 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 ha- what's what you what can you tell me? I'm, I know there's some things that you probably can't tell me because of contracts and stuff, but sure. but what's what's next? Well, um, I um, the, the same publisher, um, Bridges Gate Press, who are wonderful people. Um, they put out below um, the novella, and they have actually um, also. Uh, signed up my debut novel which is coming the beginning of next year uh in the spring i think march i think it is um and so that's march 2024 so it's a bit of a way um but um i'm very excited about it it's set in the middle east which is somewhere i used to live also in turkey um and i've traveled a bit in around egypt and places like that so there's lots of settings there uh, of places that i really love um uh and so it, it's a gin story uh i don't know if you know about like gin like sort of yeah the thing where we get the genie from yeah um but there there are no bottles and there are no wishes um <laughs> but yeah so it's, it's a gin based story um it's called shadow of the hidden and i'm extremely excited about it firstly because it's my debut novel but also because i definitely think it's the best thing i've written so far so do my beta readers so fingers crossed readers will think the same thing um and i've just wrapped up um the draft of um the first of four folklore novellas for the publisher that put out the balance and like in valley press so that kind of doesn't have a title but it's about a um a breton uh which is like a place in france like Brittany. um it's about a french fairy myth um so that's quite fun as well i'm i'm basically doing the edits for that now and then that's going to go to my beta readers next week to find out if it's actually any good or if uh i have to rewrite the whole damn thing <laughs> that sounds really interesting very interesting you got lots going on definitely yes yes busy busy that's good it's a good way to be yeah so because i've read your novella and i'm now i'm superstitious i'm not ending this on a third on 13 questions so the last question this will be number 14 um what can you tell me about portugal what's portugal like well i came here because um i wanted to get away from polish winter um because polish winter is a bit like your winter uh really really cold um (laughs) and quite long and so um i i literally drew kind of lots between italy and france uh, sorry italy and portugal as the next place to live and came up as portugal so fine came here expected to be here for about a year two years maybe and then you know reassess my options but when i got here it's just uh it's such a, a good balance of so many things it's a tiny tiny country like um you can drive from the very southern tip to the very northern tip in about uh six hours um of the whole nation and from one side to the other horizontally um, like east to west you can go hour and a half maximum and yet they have deserts mountains uh plains hills beaches rivers um uh just kind of everything you can imagine really so it's like very very diverse there's a lot to see and a lot of places to go uh the food's incredible um 
and people are really friendly. You can get by with English. So when I first came here, it was kind of a, an uphill struggle learning the language, but it's not really an issue in the cities at least. Um, and yeah, it's just uh, the other things that I met my now wife. So um, met her after about a year of living here. Yeah. And then um, and I met her and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, cool. Staying here, fine. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm actually going for citizenship this week. So fingers crossed it all goes well. Good for you. That's so cool. I'm glad I asked that question. Good for you. I'm very happy for you. That's Thank you so much. Have you ever been here? No. See, and I'm, I have the first draft of the next book in my series, mm. and it takes place in The Hague in the Netherlands. Ah, okay. You know, with a name like Vanderflug, my husband's yes. dad is from ah, the Netherlands. Okay. And I so want to head over to the Netherlands. And yes. uh, yeah, and you know, what, how you're telling, you know, being able to drive six hours or, you know, from one end to the other end or an hour and a half, you know, across. Mm. I mean, that's like the island. Jeez, that, that, that's fascinating. It's so small. Yeah, because I mean, yeah. from where you are, I suppose, to drive to the next province, it must be innumerable hours i suppose yeah, yeah. but so much it sounds like is packed within mm. those borders that's the thing there's so much to, to do and see yeah absolutely and there's lots obviously lots of history lots of castles and palaces and things like that that are quite interesting as well and then you've got like the roman history as well going back even further so yeah if you find yourself this way please do drop me a line and um because every time we have guests um or people visiting my wife turns into like um sort of like crazy um patriotic patriotic portuguese person and is like i must take you for this fish i must oh, take you to see this thing so yeah let me know i will, I will. please so, do where can people find you on uh, i i have a, i have a hard time saying this on the socials i'm sure your character chats <laughs> would have no problem saying absolutely <laughs> so bread and butter um uh, i'm my website is kefharrisonfiction.com all one word um and they can find everything from there um okay. i'm also on twitter um as lisboeta inglês which is not very helpful because it's actually a portuguese thing uh which means like an english man in lisbon basically um and then i'm also at facebook.com slash kev harrison fiction as well okay. so they can find me there um but yeah if they go to my website they can also get a free novelette of supernatural horror uh, about witches and uh, things buried in walls in england um just for signing up to my newsletter so um yeah the more the merrier always welcome with that excellent okay well i will find you on facebook too thank you thank you so thank much. you so much no it's been such a pleasure to chat to you good good okay have a good day and you too thanks a lot